In Defense of Christians is a new organization that will be having its inaugural uh, events next week, and I hope you'll all come. Uh, these two gentlemen will tell you a bit about it, and they will also, I think, after I speak, uh, have something to say about their own experiences in the region, um, uh, in particular Jordan, with his, uh, the films that he has made. Uh, he made, I presume Jordan made this uh, film that we just saw. <laughs> Uh, as well as uh, Andrew Duran, Andrew Doran, who uh, is uh, is very experienced in the area too. Uh, I've visited most of these areas, but my expertise is not about what's going on on the ground. Although it's not very difficult to figure out, uh, I'm not here to describe the horrors that, uh, fortunately, I think we are all aware of. And I say fortunately because in the 15 or so years that I've been doing this, part of the problem, as I, I think I mentioned. Uh, in the film was uh, just a lack of awareness on the part of people of goodwill of really what's going on in the Middle East. So what I'd like to do is just spend a, a couple of minutes putting this in a broader context and then addressing the very difficult issue of what we can do about this. And it is difficult because people of goodwill can disagree over what we should do about it. I'll just tell you what I think and then maybe we can leave enough time for, for you to, uh, to say what you think. Um, religious freedom is my beat. In fact, I've been accused of saying that religious freedom is the solution to every problem. Uh, that's not quite true. Most of them, but not every problem. For example, well, you can imagine some of the examples, but religious freedom is very much needed in, in, the, in the broader Middle East. Indeed, it's needed everywhere. Uh, and what I'd like to talk about is that, here's, here's my basic theme, we can't stop ISIS with religious freedom. My own view is that military force of a profound and overwhelming kind is going to be necessary. But if we kill every one of these ghouls that are responsible for the terrible things that are going on, we still will not have defeated the real problem, which is an idea or an ideology, if you like. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that and then, uh, and then say what I think uh, uh, one of the hard, difficult solutions may be. There's a global crisis in religious freedom. This has been around a long time. This is uh, in the news now. Uh, but uh, surveys by the Pew Research Center, which have just begun in the last few years, show that beginning in 2006, which is the first year they started doing this, to now, it's been bad at the very beginning and it's been slowly getting worse. So that now, in their latest report as of 2012, 76% of the world's population lives in countries where religious freedom is virtually non-existent. To put it in their terminology, where there are high or very high restrictions on religious freedom. Millions of people not just Christians, although Christians are most in the crosshairs now, but millions of people are subject to violent religious persecution, not just discrimination, but bodily harm, rape, torture, unjust imprisonment, unjust execution, disappearance, which is a, an obscene neologism for, for being kidnapped and, and killed. Uh, because of their religious beliefs and practices or because of the religious beliefs and practices of their tormentors, which is why I put the 
brutal execution of the two American journalists under the category of religious persecution. As far as we know, it wasn't because of their religious beliefs, but it was, in my view, in substantial part because of the religious beliefs of their persecutors. So it was religious persecution. This is a virulent problem. But it's not just Islam. It's not just the countries of the Muslim-majority world, even though that's what we're here to talk about tonight. It's not just the Middle East. It's China. There are problems in Russia. There are problems in India, which is the largest democracy in the world. The Prime Minister of India, Mr. Modi, is the only head of government in the world who is banned from visiting the United States. Because when he was the governor of Gujarat, he was responsible for, or failure, uh, responsible for a failure of Hindu troops to protect Muslim minorities from terrible, terrible violence. Um, Burma, which we once had great optimism about, is uh, having terrific problems. There are minorities in all of these countries. Indonesia, the largest Muslim majority country in the world, has awful problems with religious freedom. This has been brewing for a long time. And by the way, the West, Western Europe, and the United States, even though we're not here to talk specifically about this, as you may know, we have some of our own problems. They don't involve violent religious persecution, and please God, they never will. But we would be foolish to believe that we are immune in our great and wonderful country from religious persecution. This is a global problem. It's been out there for a long time, and it's important for us to recognize this. It didn't just start happening over the last three months. There are many causes of this, some of it have to do with the remnants of totalitarianism in communist countries, have to do with a mixture of nationalism and religion in countries like Burma or Russia or India, for that matter, different versions of religious radicalism. But the most virulent threat to Christians and others in the Middle East and elsewhere, and indeed I would argue to your children and your grandchildren and mine, is violent Islamist terrorism of the kind that we saw represented in the short film that we saw. Now, today in the news, uh, and of course in the news for the last several years have been Al-Qaeda, we're now talking about ISIS. Everybody talks about ISIS uh, as if it were part of the vocabulary. Uh, there, there's the Al-Nusra Front, there's uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria. There are many other examples of this, but these are simply recent manifestations of a radicalism which has been there for quite some time. There are other milder versions, if you can call it that, parts of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Deobandi uh, radicalism in places like Pakistan, uh, Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. These are all uh, radical versions of Islam. And I might tell you, I'm eager, eager to embrace the proposition that these are not mainstream Islam. And indeed, I think demographically, that is, empirically, that is true. Most Muslims in the world do not support this kind of violence, often because it turns on them. But theologically is my point. However, there are implicit in these radical understandings of Islam a plausibility about the need to do what they're doing, about the slaughter, about the cross is the enemy. The, the, the pluralism that Christianity has brought to the Middle East is an enemy to these people. So we kill every one of them. That idea is still there. 
And at the root of it is the notion that God requires me to do this. Now, for those of you who are Catholics or evangelicals, just think about that for a minute. If you get that into your mind, God really, I must do this. It's a powerful motivator for human beings. And of course, we Christians understand that historically, uh, we have had some, some difficulties ourselves over 2,000 years with some of the things that mainstream Islam is dealing with now. Blasphemy laws, anti-blasphemy laws, anti-apostasy laws. But these are the launching pad to extremism. They allow, the anti-blasphemy laws, allow the discourse about what Islam requires of people to be dominated by these radicals. Why? I'll tell you a story I tell my students that illustrates the point. And I use a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in this because it's about writing papers, which my students do. But this is a true story. I think it's 2004. It doesn't matter. An Afghan graduate student who was writing, he was uh, uh, involved in a, in a uh, graduate studies in Kabul, and he wrote a paper which he used uh, the internet to do research for, in which he argued that the Quran supports the notion that men and women are equal. His professors turned him in. This is where I kind of smirked my student. His professors turned him in to local prosecutors. He was charged with blasphemy under the laws of Afghanistan. This is not pre-American uh, invasion. This is after we had liberated Afghanistan. He was charged with blasphemy, tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death for blasphemy against Islam. You cannot have a civilization, let alone a democracy, a stable government, a democratic government, where the primary, the, the, this, was, this was a mainstream Sunni Muslim trying to make an argument as his, for his understanding of God. If we cannot address that problem, we can't solve the problem that we are engaged, we're seeing on the television now. We've got to kill some people, I hate to say that in this hallowed room, but I think it's true, in our defense, in defense of our children, but that will not solve the problem. What we have to do is what we should have been doing all along, and that is, and here I want to acknowledge that people of goodwill can and will disagree with me because this is an old subject in American foreign policy circles, and that is the promotion of stable self-governance grounded in religious freedom or something close to it. I believe that if we do not do the hard work that is required in places like Iraq, in places like that already have the institutions of democracy, places like Egypt, Pakistan, even Afghanistan, if we do not take this seriously, we will suffer, our children will suffer. As some of you know, um, the United States has had for 16 years a legal requirement to promote religious freedom in its foreign policy. How many of you knew that? Most of you didn't know that. Steve, you knew it because you can't help it. You've been involved in it the whole time. We have an Office of International Religious Freedom at the Department of State. They are under a legal requirement, as is every administration and every Secretary of State, 
to integrate the promotion of religious freedom into American foreign policy. It's been there since 1998, the International Religious Freedom Act, passed unanimously by both houses of Congress and signed by President Bill Clinton. The head of this operation is called an ambassador at large for religious freedom. There have been three of them, one under each of the three presidents since 1998, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. Under this president, that office has been vacant for more than half of the six, approximately six years that this administration has been in power. It is currently vacant. What does that tell you? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that this is not a high priority. It has not been, and it is still not to this day, a high priority to promote religious freedom as part of our foreign policy, as part of our democracy promotion effort. Now, this is hard work. Every country is different. Every Islamic country is different. There are many Islams. There's not one Islam. And the only reason anybody in his right mind would say what I'm saying to you, and that is that I believe we have to do this, is not because we're good guys, although I think this is the greatest country in the history of the world. It's not because it's nice to do, because we want democracy to uh, everybody to have it. It's true. People should have it. People should have freedom. People should live in, human beings should live in free societies. But we can't. We're not the puppet masters of the world, but we're talking about the national security of this country, of my children and my grandchildren. Because if we don't stop what's going on in the Middle East, this isn't just some war out there. The spread of radical, violent Islamist terrorism is going to harm us. So we've got to do two things. We've got to take military action, my opinion. But then we've got to ask ourselves, what can we do to undermine the proposition or undermine the possibility that another ISIS, if we can destroy these people, or other Boko Harams or other al-Nusra fronts will rise in the countries of the Middle East? Some of my friends want to say, well, we have to support Assad. We have to support this thug, this dictator, because he will keep the lid on radical Islam. Well, that may be true for a year, may be true for two years, but it won't be true into the future. The people of the Middle East want some kind of stable self-governance. They don't know how to do it. We don't have an easy way for them to do it. But I can tell you this, they cannot do it if they do not learn how to honor and respect religious freedom. We have a story to tell to them. We can explain to them that this is not about what they fear it is, moving Islam to the margins of society. It is moving extremist Islam. But it is not moving religion out of public life. That's not what religious freedom has historically been in this country, although it is increasingly what it means today. When we speak of religious freedom to Muslim-majority countries today, they think we are, not to put too fine a point on it, French. They think we're trying to impose a, a form of laïcité. I don't know if you're familiar with that. The purpose of French religious freedom, laïcité, is to get religion to control it, not to free it. 
That's why they subsidize the Catholic schools and the Jewish schools and increasingly the Muslim schools. It's to control religion. The American system has something to say to Islam. It requires limits on religion in the public square, which is very important. But we have something to say to the Islamic world that has not been said to them by any administration, especially by this one. I just want to say one other thing, and I want to stop and let these two gentlemen correct me. I've said that I think the long-term solution has got to be st stable self-government in the Middle East. This is very hard. We have to get in this game, and at the root of it has got to be religious freedom. We have not done that. We have to do it. And by the way, let me just tell you, those of you who think this is all pie in the sky, Ronald Reagan went to Westminster, London in 1983 and announced the National Endowment for Democracy. Whether you know it or not, over the last 30 years, billions, hundreds of billions of your tax dollars have been used to develop the institutions and habits of democracy all over the world. Only very recently, post 9-11, have we done it in the Middle East. But very little of that money has gone to the advancement of religious freedom, which I think is one reason for our failures. We spent $60 billion in Egypt, and Egypt is in terrible shape. There are many problems, but one of them is the absence of religious freedom. The, the equality of everybody, every religious citizen in any country, that's the, the first step toward religious freedom. Here are the other arguments, and then we can want to stop talking. We can't go to, to Muslim-majority countries or Hindu-majority countries or any other religious-based country, for that matter, an atheist country like China, and say, let us explain to you how you're wrong, how your religion is wrong or how your culture is wrong. This has tended to be our approach when we did anything. And it's not it's surprising that it doesn't work. How do you like to, to have a conversation begin? Come let us reason about what's so screwed up about you. What we need to say is the truth, and that is, if you don't have religious freedom, guess what else you're not going to have? You're not going to have stable democracy. You're not going to have economic growth. How about that? Yeah, we can prove it, too. We have data that shows that economic growth is dramatically slowed where there is no religious freedom. But where it exists, where it increases, it increases and sustains economic growth. There's, a, there's an argument for China, which is deadly afraid for good reason that its economic growth is going to stop. Well, back off a little bit, some of the, the Christians and others in China. You're going to have more economic growth. This is an argument for Egypt. It's an argument for Pakistan. It's an argument about stability. And finally, it's an argument about terrorism, violent religious extremism. It can take advantage of free society, as it does and has in this country, certainly in Western Europe. But it is highly unlikely to be nourished and incubated. Why? Because religious freedom means everybody gets a voice. And here's my final point. Imagine a Saudi Arabia, which is where all the 9-11 hijackers came from, or 17 of the 19, right? Where bin Laden was born and raised. Imagine a Saudi Arabia that after the Second World War became a liberal democracy with religious freedom. And it had all the Muslims that are there now. The Wahhabis had their voice, and the Muslim Brotherhood had their voice. That was what bin Laden was raised on, by the way, at the university. He sat at the 
feet of Syed Qutb's brother and read all of this stuff and then he sort of graduated from, from that into Al-Qaeda. But suppose he had heard Muslims say, this is all nonsense. Islam does not require this. Suppose he had heard Christians. There are about 1.5 million Christians in Saudi Arabia, many of them Filipino women who cannot go to mass, who cannot get confession, who can't see a priest. Imagine people free to be who they are in Saudi Arabia. Here's my question to you. Had Osama bin Laden and these hijackers been raised in that kind of Saudi Arabia instead of the one they were raised in, would 9-11 have happened? I think there's a good argument that 9-11 would not have happened because bin Laden would not have been radicalized and there would, never would have been an Al-Qaeda. Now, of course, there are other factors here. But religious freedom is a counter-terrorism diplomatic tool. It doesn't require the blood of your brothers and sisters and children. It does require hard diplomatic effort. If we're not prepared to do that, we're going to lose this war. And I'll stop. Good evening, and uh, thanks everybody for this opportunity to speak. I'll uh, try to keep my remarks brief. Um, it's an you introduce yourself. My name is Andrew Dorn, and I'm the executive director of uh, In Defense of Christians. And uh, it's, an, it's an honor today to be uh, sharing the the, uh, the, ta the table here, the panel, with one of my heroes, Tom Farr, who's been a champion of uh, human rights and religious freedom for decades. Um, I always find it ironic that. Tom is uh, sort of the vanguard of these Enlightenment values. You know, we often forget that uh, religious freedom was regarded as one of the great achievements of, uh, of uh, Republican government in the late 18th century. But today, it's uh, those who very often wrap themselves in the mantle of the Enlightenment uh, brush aside with indifference uh, the, uh, the claims of human rights activists like Tom who believe in religious freedom. I think, uh, just as a quick aside, I, I believe that they do this because they reject all categories of uh, non-material uh, ideas. I think any, any, any non-material reality. And I, and I think that's ultimately at the core of it. Because they just think, oh, this is, this is silly, this is an idea. What we consider the mind of the soul, these, these things that are immaterial, they would regard as nonsense, as myth. And I, and I really do think that burrowing down to the core, you'll find that that's what the difference, that's where the difference lay. But um, I did want to say that uh, um, I agree with Tom that ISIS is going to be with us for some time, and uh, uh, reasonable minds can differ on these subjects. I was opposed to the 2003 invasion of Iraq for a variety of reasons. I do believe that military intervention is necessary now, and I think in, in making this case, um, I wrote about this in National Review recently, there is a duty to, to defend those whom you put in harm's way when you create the harm. And I believe that we, we did that in Iraq, unfortunately, and that we do have a duty to go in there and protect innocent civilians. And I don't think it's just an American responsibility. I think the international community, whatever that may mean today, uh, has a duty to do so as well. But even, even if every last member of ISIS is killed, uh, things are going to get far worse before they get better because these, idea, these are ideas that we're, that we're, that we're fighting. And um, I also agree that the Assad regime is really not the answer, although that argument uh, 
may seem tempting and persuasive. There's a lot of evidence on the ground that Jordan and I witnessed when we were there that the Assad regime is actually um, has a, a kind of modus vivendi with even ISIS, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't be too quick to assume that uh, that this ruthless Machiavellian regime, although not as uh, egregious or evil as ISIS, is uh, is the, the path forward, at least not for the long term. Um, my wife uh, was asking me what I'm going to talk about, and I started to tell her, uh, people ask the question, what can you do? Uh, and I started rattling off a number of things, and she said, you understand a housewife is not going to leave her children and fly to the Middle East and start blogging. <laughs> and uh, so that's a, that's a very good point, dear. But I am going to rattle these off somewhat quickly, if you'll, if you'll forgive me. I think, and she sort of broke it down for me in, in categories that I think make sense. Um, for those of you who have maybe you know, a few minutes, because we're all very busy, and we're all committed, many of us to, uh, all of us, I hope, to, to good things and noble things. If you only have a few minutes, I would say a phone call to your pastor. Can we include the Christians of the Middle East in the prayers of the faithful? Or can we bring in a speaker from the Middle East to talk about this issue? Or can we, uh, can we put this up on the parish website? Uh, can we start a prayer group? Things like that. If you have an hour, um, I would say try and organize some of those efforts yourself, or maybe blog about it, or um, uh, even go so far as to adopt a church somewhere in the Middle East, which I think is a, a great idea, and a few evangelical parishes that I'm aware of do it, and I think it's, it's a very good um, thing to be done. Um, and then I think there's maybe a handful of people here who might end up following the path that Jordan and I have taken, and that is to go to the Middle East and to really encounter and engage uh, on a personal level um, the Christians and, and the Muslims in, in that part of the world. Uh, I think there's a lot of value to that. Touching on something that Tom said, um, I, don't think, I don't know that anyone's written about it. I'd like to think that if George Orwell were alive today, he'd write an essay called Technology in the English Language, because I think that the, um, the growth of the internet technologies and the just the expansion of English as kind of a universal uh, vernacular is, uh, has created, uh, infused in the English language as a vocabulary for liberty, for freedom, for human dignity, and for rights that often doesn't have a corresponding equal in other languages, that has no equivalent in other languages. And I think that's not to be underestimated. When young people start studying English and they start learning, they start adopting these, these terms into their own, uh, into their own thoughts and ideas and the way that they express themselves. And I see this all the time with um, friends of mine from the Middle East when they express their ideas in English. And I think, that's well, that's really fascinating. What is, and I'll ask them, what is the equivalent of that in your language? And they'll say, well, we don't quite have that. You think about how interesting that is. There's an opportunity to engage people all around the world here using technology. Um, and uh, for better or for worse, when you're an American and you go to a place like Yemen, uh, you're sort of a, a movie star. You're sort of a rock star. People are fascinated by Americans. They want to see you. They want to talk to you. Um, and uh, you're kind of an ambassador of sorts when you encounter these people. So uh, I don't want to get sidetracked too much because I'm, I'm, I realize I'm talking to maybe three or four people in the room at this point who are going to travel to the Middle East. But uh, uh, And I don't say this lightly because we've seen what happened to Stephen Sutloff and to James Foley uh, over the past two weeks, and uh, it's, it's devastating. It's horrific to see that. ISIS knows um, what, uh, what effect that has on people, what, vi what a, the effect that violence has on the human person. And it's, uh, it's frankly, a, it can be debilitating in some ways. It can, 
It can lead people to indifference or to say, you know what, I'm just not looking at it, the news or I'm not going to pay attention anymore. They know what they're doing. They're frightening everybody. They had to shut down social media several weeks ago in Iraq because everyone was so terrified of ISIS. People were fleeing towns because they were turning on their, their Facebook pages. And I see this with my friends in the Middle East as I'm scrolling through Facebook. I see severed heads and I try to move past it quickly because I, I think it's not good to look at those things. I think you're only giving them unearned media when you do that. Um, this is a debate that, that Jordan and I have been having for a long time and Mary Elizabeth and, and others and I feel very passionately about it. So don't ever catch me at like two o'clock in the morning talking about the immorality of watching uh, those sorts of things online. But uh, it is horrific, it is horrible. Uh, I believe that those men were heroes. I believe that they went out to do what they did, uh, answering uh, a call, uh, a higher moral purpose. And um, some of that perhaps is, is, um, comes from being products of Christian civilization, and some of it may be more peculiar to America. But um, whatever sent them off uh, to do that, they put themselves in harm, harm's way, and um, more than I did, and uh, more, than, more than we did on our trip to Syria. And um, I don't know if anybody wants to hear anything about that or where we are on time or... Um, so I, I can I can leave it to Jordan um, to discuss to discuss those those trips uh, that we've taken. But I, but I would say that um, we discussed very seriously before going the possibility you know the horrible things that could that could happen, and we discussed it in, in detail. And um, we didn't do it carelessly. We didn't do it thoughtlessly. And I would say that the same must be true of James Foley and Steve Sutloff. Uh, and it's terrible to see. Um, you know, ISIS was, I think, as everybody knows, excommunicated from Al-Qaeda. And, and so you just really have to wonder, can it get worse than ISIS? I think the answer is no, but I'm afraid they're also going to be, they're going to be with us for a long time. And, um, uh, and I guess I would just, I would close by saying, um, it's easy to be an armchair crusader, and I see this tendency very often uh, um, among, among dear friends sometimes, but... Uh, to just sort of be dismissive of, of uh, Muslims. Um, I, I would say this, I would say remember that, um, remember that millions of Christians live side by side with Muslims in the Muslim world. And uh, we heard an interesting story when we were in uh, Egypt. Uh, there was a group of, uh, we heard this in, on two accounts, twice, uh, two different instances actually, the, the Franciscan brothers and then again the sisters of Mahdi. And when Egypt descended into chaos in 2011, um, these two monastic and, and uh, religious communities are so essential to the communities they live in that the Muslims stood watch in the night uh, to make sure that the sisters were okay and to make sure that the Franciscans were okay. And, uh, and that's more than I've done. So I, I always have to remember that um, not to be critical of, of all, of an entire civilization, of an entire people, because many of them have stood watch in the night. And um, with that, I will uh, just pass it over to Jordan. And uh, thank you again. My name is Jordan Allett, and uh, I have a production company in Alton Productions. And I've also been working with Andrew with uh, In Defense of Christians. And I kind of see my role with these, especially Tom, but also Andrew, experts when it comes to religious freedom and, and the Middle East. Uh, I, I see my role maybe more coming from your perspective, somebody who's learning more 
as I go uh, about the Middle East and about the situation for Christians there. Um, about a year and a half ago, uh, I was introduced to Andrew through a mutual friend, and uh, I was very interested in these issues, but I didn't know a whole lot about the Middle East. And, and before I knew it, we were in, uh, in Egypt when the Muslim Brotherhood was still in power, and, and then since then we, we've been able to go to Lebanon and Iraq and then into Syria as well. And, and I've learned a lot, but again, from the perspective of a filmmaker wanting to, to produce shorter videos, but also with the idea of producing a, a feature-length documentary on the Christians in the Middle East and their, their plight, their situation, um, and the important role that they play. Um, and, and so when I talk to friends or, or family members now, I, I hear them voice maybe concerns or, or questions that I had um, originally, and, and I guess I, I changed my opinion on. And, and one of these is, is something that Tom and, and Andrew have both touched on. And that is the important role that Christians play in, in these countries. Um, for example, the Sisters of Mahdi, and we had some video footage of them, and Andrew mentioned them. Uh, we met them, um, sort of, they, they live on the outskirts of, live and work on the outskirts of Cairo. And they've been there, been in, uh, I think they're originally from Germany, and, and they've been in Egypt for about 100 years. And they're mostly Egyptian nuns, but, um, they serve about 100,000 mainly poor, uneducated Muslims every year. And every Muslim that they come into contact with, they have an influence on. And the likelihood of, of those Muslims being radicalized is diminished significantly. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about being the salt of the earth. Well, they're a perfect um, representation of that just a few of them can really change a society. And uh, groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they know that, and that's why they want to get rid of every last Christian. It, it doesn't need to be a large Christian community, um, you, know, an you know, an overwhelming Christian community in, in these countries, in these societies, to have an impact. And we, we also, in Syria, met with an evangelical pastor in his church, who obviously a lot of people have been killed and displaced all throughout Syria, and they had dedicated their, their lives, basically, to helping their, not only Christians and Kurds, but also probably a majority of the people that they helped were Muslims with basic necessities like food and water and, and clothing. And, and every day, that's what they dedicated their lives to. And so, you know, that, that's when it really clicked for me. To, to, because a lot of times people say, well, yes, it's it'd be great if, if we don't want to see people killed. We don't want to see Christians killed. But how important is it that, that they stay there? We, we hear somebody like Barack Obama say, well, this is the Muslim part of the world. Well, no, there are these large Christian communities, like in the video, we, we touched on that, that have been there for, for longer than Islam has been around. Um, and a lot of the Christians, they don't want to leave. Sometimes they have to, but they have a huge impact on their communities, on, their soci on the society that they live in. And if they're not there, then it also poses a national security risk for us because the whole area becomes sort of like one Saudi Arabia. Um, so it's, as Tom was saying, it's not just the right thing to do. It's not just because they're Christian and we're Christian and we want to help our fellow you know, brother and sister Christians, but also we, it's in our interest that we support them and that we 
find a way, and it, this is sort of not just short term, but, but long term, that they are able to stay there. Because even in Lebanon, which has a larger Christian community, their, their numbers are, are, are diminishing as well. Obviously, in, in places like Iraq and Syria, they are e even more so. Um, so, like I said, I mean, I, I, I see my role as, as, as learning about the situation and, and trying to tell personal stories so that whether it's a Sisters of Mahdi or an evangelical pastor in Syria or um, people that we've met, uh, George in Lebanon, who's uh, a great example of Christians in, in this part of the world, and the work that they're doing not only for other Christians but for their, their neighbors who are Muslim, um, telling these stories so it's not just, we, you know, we hear the numbers of, of people dying or the numbers of uh, Christians fleeing, but here's a, here's a person that they, they might speak a different language, but, they're, but they're, they're praying to Allah, they're praying to God, the Christian God, but in, in Arabic, and they, they would say Allah. Um, and, and to make that connection so that when a Christian, or anybody of goodwill, but especially a Christian here in the West, in the United States, thinks about a Christian in the Middle East, they don't think of them as you know, a community that, that existed a long time ago. or They, they have a real personal connection with them. They, they, they feel a connection. Um, and I think Andrew touched on some of the things that we can do. Um, you know, we, we also want our foreign policy then to, to sort of match up with our, our priorities um, and our principles. And so if we as Christians are not advocating for, for Christians in other parts of the world, especially right now in the Middle East, or it could be Nigeria, or, you know, the, unfortunately a lot, of, a lot of places that we could focus our attention on. But if we're not willing to do that as Christians here in the United States, then we can't expect those who are not Christian or who are not really interested in, in, in things like religious freedom to do that. Um, so it is our obligation, I think, um, to, to stand up for, for Christians there. And, and, and so many of them that we met, they, they looked at us and they kind of wondered, well, we share similar values to the West. We, we share a faith with Christians in the United States and in Europe, but why we don't, we don't feel like anybody cares about, about what's going on and, and, and specifically the targeting of Christians. Um, and, and we didn't have a very good answer you know, to, to give them other than that there wasn't enough awareness that these individuals or these communities that they exist and that they've existed for a long time and that they're not insignificant as far as the numbers and also the impact that they have on their communities and, and how that impacts us here uh, in the United States. So I know that's something that Tom has been doing his whole, whole life and, and Andrew's now dedicated himself to, to do with In Defense of Christians and, and I hope to do the same with some of the, the video projects that I'm working on. Okay. We have time for a couple of questions, do we? Hi, thank you all very much. Can you hear me in the back? 
All right, hi, thank you very much for coming out here. I appreciate listening to you. I'm actually an active duty officer in the military. I've been in Afghanistan for seven months uh, for duty tour, and it's really nice to hear folks come out and explain about what's going on in the Middle East. I do have a question. Um, I know that they are using media to frighten folks and to intimidate. Is there a central repository of information that we can get out to folks saying, here, if you really want to know the truth, go to this site? I'm afraid I haven't been on in uh, Defense of Christians website, so I don't really know. But that's my question. Thanks very much for your question and for your service. Um, I think that there are a variety of, of resources. The first place I usually direct people who want to learn more about this subject is Nina Shea's uh, blog on uh, Hudson's Center for Religious Freedom. Uh, Nina has been documenting this work for 20 years approximately, I would say, and she has a, a great catalog of articles and resources there. Um, I, I would um, also direct you to uh, Georgetown's Berkeley Center, uh, which has a lot of more, it's a little bit more heady, but it's uh, a lot of great uh, material there. I, I'm unaware, frankly, of a, of a single uh, resource for um, uh, finding, was, was the question about uh, social media or is it about no, video or? Yeah. I'm not quite sure what you're doing. Yeah. So you go, all right, where's all the information stored so I can learn what I need to do? Yeah. And if you're looking for advocacy, if you're looking for getting the information out, especially for us as Christians, yes. or even as national security purposes, it's sure. like, okay. Because I have tons of people saying, all right, Michelle, I see it on your Facebook. you got a problem in ISIS, mm. but I don't want to look at it anymore. So it's yeah. like, how do we keep the mainstream going, saying, here's some updates, here's an update, here's an update, but not necessarily set ahead head stuff, but what we're yeah. talking about. Of course. Um, our website uh, is, we, we want to get to exactly what you're talking about. We have a good baseline for it right now. Um, we want to make it very accessible to people. Um, we want people to, to, to see people when they, when they want them to see photos, multimedia, right, when they, when they look at a country rather than that country just being an abstraction like Iraq or someplace all the way on the other side of the world. When you see a human face, right, and you, someone you can identify with, you see a a story. So we really want to personalize the people on the ground. We also want to provide policymakers with very pragmatic approaches. With with you know most of these people are grounded in realpolitik, and that's and that's fine uh, because we believe that realism. And if you read Tom's book, uh, World of Faith and Freedom, and I strongly urge everyone to do so if you haven't. It's essentially laying out the blueprint for the policy work that we uh, are undertaking within Defense of Christians. Um, there are very strong and persuasive arguments for promoting human rights around the world because that is in our long-term national security interests. So we look at a lot of the policies that are blowing up in our face today and those policies are rooted in very short-term policy approaches 50 years ago or 30 years ago. So we do need to uh, get our act together on that front. And we um, have, even though we're formally launching next week, we've already had many meetings on Capitol Hill and uh, we, we've had the opportunity to, to uh, we hope influence a lot of um, policy uh, changes, and we hope to do more of that. But um, if you do go to our website, indefensivechristians.com, um, I think you'll see uh, some of what you're talking about there, and we hope to develop that more in, in the weeks and months ahead. So, thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Deacon David Cruz. I'm a transitional deacon for the Diocese of Spokane, Washington. Uh, thank you very much for what you're doing here. Uh, it makes a, di a difference, especially at the strategic level. 
Uh, before I entered the seminary, I was in uh, U.S. Army Special Operations. I served in Iraq in 2003 and 4. I was on the ground working with these communities that are being slaughtered right now. Um, I worked also on the side of the um, of the U.S. government to uh, persuade, influence, and change the hearts and minds of the enemy uh, at the same time. Uh, so our job was strategic and tactical, what they call PSYOP. Um, now, as a seminarian and as a future priest here in May, God willing, um, I'm bringing my experience and my passion and my love for these people and my love for the church into my ministry. Uh, what I see as a root uh, fundamental issue here uh, that is not being talked about that we need to address especially in these communities here in D.C. that are Catholic and Christian, is an idea and, and a, re, a reawakening of spiritual combat from a Christian perspective, authentic Christian perspective, which means tapping into our 2,000-year-old tradition of uh, Christian spiritual mystical theology, Teresa of Avila, uh, John of the Cross, uh, Augustine, Irenaeus, they all speak about it. The Gospels, for heaven's sake, speak about it clearly. And uh, so I'm not sure if I have a question out of that, but I want you to know that there are people like myself aware and working at a grassroots level within the Christian and Catholic communities and abroad uh, that are very well aware of what's going on in the Middle East, are very well aware of not the potential uh, threat, but the very real threat in the Middle East and to our country itself. And uh, so I want you to know I'm on your side. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for your service too, as well as, as you know. Appreciate this comment. There was one more question back here. Um, Professor Farr, you talked about promoting or doing something about the the ideology that's driving this sort of thing. Uh, I, I am one of those people who, who, who is a little skeptical of, a, of overthrowing the, the strong man, and I think maybe that's caused some problems. But just aside from doing that, what should Western governments being, be doing? Um, you know, I guess a sort of aside from the military option, what can they do to, to promote sort of religious, religious freedom and pluralism in these countries? Well, I mean, there's not much that can be done in places like in Iraq and Syria now while there's this kind of security problem. But Egypt is an example of a place where, in my view, uh, if we can get beyond where we are now, these are people who have opted for democracy. As far as I know, we didn't trick them, pay them, or force them. Uh, they opted for democracy, and they're discovering it's very, very difficult. And uh, we should be making the arguments to them that I mentioned before, that what you are seeking for yourselves, for your own country, your own children, simply won't work. If you cannot move in the direction of religious freedom, it doesn't mean the U.S. First Amendment, it doesn't mean, frankly, anything right away, but it means a recognition by them that their interests require them to move in this direction. And once you have a conversation like that, then you can begin to try to empower people inside those countries who see the value of this. And it's very important that uh, Muslims are involved in this, so it's not perceived simply as a, as a Christian problem. Although it is huge. I mean, Coptic 
Egyptian Coptic Christians are fleeing there, not at the same rate, but at an alarming rate. The Middle East is being mentioned, emptied of Christians. So there's a, there's a practical uh, issue there, and that is, you know, do you really want to chase all of these people out? They have contributed to your societies for two millennia. We did a, at my religious freedom program at Georgetown, we did a two-year study on Christian contributions to freedom. And we're going to come out with several volumes on this, but we had a big conference in Rome before all of this ISIS stuff started in, in earnest back late last year, and the, a man who's a hero of mine, the uh, Chaldean uh, patriarch of, of Baghdad, Sacco, Louis Raphael Sacco is his name. But Louis Raphael is not obviously Arabic, but those are the names that he chose. And he's the, he's the patriarch of all the Chaldeans. He's the, the, the head Catholic, so to speak. And he came and he gave a speech, and he was just this marvelous old man speaking in halting English but making himself understood. And the title of his speech was, What Happens to the Middle East if Christians Flee? And the answer was chaos. Not because Christians are the only good people here, but because they have contributed. They are part of these societies, and you're destroying yourself. And he looked out at us. There was an audience in Rome, 300 or so people. And he actually said this. When will you pay attention to us? Will you pay attention when we're all dead? And now, in the light of what is happening, of course, then they were not in flight. 200,000 Christians in Iraq were not in flight. They are now. And I don't know where he is. I pray for his uh, safety. So the answer to this long-winded answer, but the answer is you've got to put it in their interest. You've got to make them see how it's in their interest to do this. If you don't, we're never going to get anywhere. And the only reason you would do it is because it's in our interest to do so. I'm convinced of that. So you're a skeptic. You're in, you're in good company. But the stakes are huge. That's why you have to do the work. Where's the mic? I'm Lieutenant Ron Brown. I'm Lieutenant Ron Brown, um, U.S. Navy. And uh, I'm, a naval, I'm a naval intelligence officer, so I'm part of the military, but I'm also part of the intelligence community. Um, I'm sensing there are a lot of military in the audience, and there may be a lot of... Really exclusive. You said but. <laughs> sir. <laughs> well, that's why I'm naval intelligence, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so, for, so for anyone in, uh, in the military who's in the audience or anyone who in, the, in the IC, or uh, especially anyone in, involved in various policy realms of the government, um, what, what can we, I came here to ask one question basically, what can we do to help? As a, as a policy matter. As a policy too, but also well, I, per, personally for me, what can I do from an intelligence or from a military perspective well, from a, to help? From an intelligence and military perspective, you know, I, I must say that I, I don't see the problem as a lack of information about what, what's going on in the world. Oh, no. Not that you were suggesting that. No, not at all. What is lacking is a, is a big backbone on the part of our political elites in the Congress and in the White House. So how can we help security. drive action is what I'm saying? Pardon. Well, ask your member of Congress, ask your senator, write them, talk to them, write to the White House, whoever is in the political world that you have access to, and you have access, everybody has access to somebody, and ask them what they're doing about religious freedom. 
ask them if they're even aware there's an Office of Religious Freedom with a missing ambassador at large. And, and why has this office not been involved over the last six years of this presidency? I, I should note that this president has, no, has nominated an ambassador at large. He's a Jewish rabbi. His name is David Saperstein. Uh, some of us uh, Catholics have some problems with his positions domestically, but we think he can do the job. The Senate ought to get this guy in the office. They ought to, they ought to have hearings in September. But typically, this is such a below-the-radar issue that who knows how long it will be. So, you know, ask about that. Show some awareness that we have a policy. We have a law that says, thou shalt promote religious freedom. If I may just very quickly, and thank you for your service as well. Um, I have a number of people who come up to me and say, you know what, I actually point to your articles or at the office, and they, they work for the various offices of the U.S. government similar to yourself, and, uh, and they say and it does take a little bit, it's kind of a breakthrough moment, you know, because we all, uh, th these, these halls of power are very, very secular, uh, and, and there is a discomfort saying those things, saying, well, what about the Christians there? And I remember the first time I said it before I became involved in this work, and it was this sort of arched brow, right, and people just sort of looking like, what, there are no Christians in Iraq, you know, that, that, that's what someone actually said to me. And, uh, and so that, that's an opportunity. Even a small thing like that can, can be a breakthrough moment. And we're going to ask a follow-up question. Yes, sir. Uh, before I hand over to Mike, uh, one last time, could you please repeat the name of that law? Because I think that's important for us all to, when we're bringing it up. The International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. Okay. Thank you. Hello, my name is Zina Damian. Actually, I was born in Baghdad, and I come from a Chaldean family. And for those of you that don't know, Assyrians and Chaldeans are from northern Iraq, Nineveh, which is Muslim now, and we speak Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke. But if you ask a lot of Christians from Iraq, Chaldeans, Assyrians, they will say they were safer, not necessarily happier, safer, and had their religious freedom under Saddam's regime. He to the church, it's sad to say. I mean, I'm not saying he's, I'm not glorifying him whatsoever. He was a dictator. He did some brutal things, but he protected us. I mean, to the extent where if anyone touched the church, he went after them. You filed a complaint. You went to his people. They took care of us. Um, so now the situation is we're all fleeing. This ancient culture is fleeing, and there's nothing going to be left in Iraq. And I want to say Egypt's template is an example of this religious freedom, democracy, stable self-government that you were talking about, but Iraq still has a government. Are there any chances for that based on what you're saying, or should they just go over to a secular dictator to take care of everybody, I guess? Short version, my version of that is the answer is no. We, we can't go back, and you know we can talk about whether we, as, as, as uh, Andrew mentioned, whether we should have invaded Iraq, but why do that? We are where we are. I don't believe the movement of the, of the world is in the direction of secular di dictators. I don't think they protect. I think that this caused 9-11. It did not prevent it. I don't mean Saddam Hussein. But the U.S. support in the Middle East for, for tyrants was a bad policy then. It is hard work to move toward democracy. And the answer to your question, in my view, is yes. Imagine what would have happened 
again, I'm doing a lot of imagining, but we made so many mistakes, we can look back and, and ask this question. In 2003, after, in March of 2003, after we toppled Saddam, if we had begun right then trying to convince the Iraqi political elite, both Shia and Sunni, that this thing is not going to work if you don't move towards something, we're calling it religious freedom, but there are many ways to put it, a kind of equality between Sunni and Shia and frankly everybody else in Iraq. You may not like it, you have these ancient uh, divisions and hatreds, but if you can't get over that, this is not going to work. It would have prevented Malak, uh, Maliki from doing what he did. Uh, it would have, uh, uh, I think, had a, a tremendous impact on Iran, Iraq. We failed to do that, but we can still do it if we can get beyond the security problems that we have now. Right now, there's no, there's no real point, I think, about talking about advancing religious freedom in Iraq or Syria until the situation stabilized. But when it is, and it will be, we have got to do this. Because if we don't, we're going to be right back where we are now. That's my opinion. Somebody over here. Ah. Uh, I'm Mark Danner. I've spent many years of my life in the Middle East and involved with Muslims and Christians. Thanks for your presentation, very moving. A uh, couple comments. One is uh, regarding influencing policymakers. I don't put too much at stake right now in influencing the U.S. government. Uh, that's maybe a task that comes down the line. I saw it when I served in government for 15 years on the pointy end of the stick, and there was a point where I realized that I wasn't going to change things, but uh, speaking to the uh, Navy officer's question, where the change really comes is in yourself. Self-awareness is part of learning what's happening in the Middle East and what we carry and what we can learn from them. So for example, the Arab Christian tradition is extremely rich and we can learn a lot from it. Recently, the Archbishop of Mosul was visiting refugees in northern Iraq and he said he learned from them how to face their suffering. So when we engage, it's not just, hey, we're here to help, we're here, you know, here, take this, take that, but you have so much to teach us. Uh, and that's part of our humility in front of, of our brothers and sisters. I also wanted to say that, as you mentioned, the important role of befriending Muslims, moderate Muslims. And the method that I've seen is three words, come and see, not do this or be like we are in America, but come and see. Come and see something in my life. Come and see something in my community that moves. So a very quick example is this last week uh, was held in Italy, the largest cultural festival in Europe, started by a Catholic community, Catholic lay movement. And present there were many different Muslims, including the rector of Al-Azhar University, the largest Islamic university in the world. And he was present at this Catholic cultural meeting, and he's been present there several times. There were Egyptian women, speaking about their work, Muslims and Christians. And they were there because they'd seen a Catholic culture that was alive, it was attractive, something that uh, they wanted to be part of. And then finally, uh, somebody asked about resources. I know that for me, I regularly uh, read the uh, Asia News uh, .it site. It's fantastic. It's by the uh, PMA uh, missionaries, asianews.it. I also follow uh, Oasis, the Oasis Center, which was started by Cardinal Scola. It's a fantastic center. Uh, Fides is uh, another site, and I keep my eye very closely uh, tuned to what uh, 
Patriarch Fuad Twal of Jerusalem is saying. He's the uh, Patriarch of all Catholics in Jordan, Palestine, Cyprus, um, Israel. And so you have some really wise leaders out there and uh, wise uh, and informative writers who are writing for Asia Times, uh, Asia News, especially uh, Father Samir Khalil Samir. So these are just some resources that I keep abreast on. But I'll be at the conference next week, and God bless your work. I'll try to make it quick. I apologize. I grabbed the rank, uh, last question from you. But um, basically, I wanted to make two comments and ask one question. Uh, the first comment, in terms of Rafael Sacco, he's actually safe. He's in uh, northern Iraq in Erbil, uh, which is basically where all the Christians fled uh, from their homes. The, the second comment I wanted to make, a lot of these Christians that fled their homes, they literally fled with their shirts on their back. They have, no, they have no food, they have no money, they have no possessions. A lot of them are living outside, they're living in churches, they're, you know, they have parks, now they're setting up tents. So they literally have nothing uh, to live off of. So I know a lot of people ask, well, what can we do to help? Uh, a lot of these people need financial assistance. Uh, there are several organizations out there that are providing it. I'm not sure if there's any mainstreams like Red Cross or any of the other organizations. But there are some organizations that are providing food, they're providing support. Uh, housing, they're providing clothes and everything else. So I would strongly recommend people to look into providing some financial support. Catholic Charities is one of them. Catholic, Catholic Church. Church. Catholic Relief Services. Oh, is it? Catholic Relief Services. Catholic. The, the other two I know is uh, helpiraq.org. The other two I know is helpiraq.org, which is, uh, I believe, led by the Chaldean, Chaldean uh, uh, Christians in Iran. And, or, I'm sorry, in Iraq, and the other one is uh, Assyrian Aid Society, which is also the Christians in Iraq as well. And the Catholic uh, Near East Welfare Association does marvelous work as well. Okay. And I believe and Aid to the Church in Need is, is involved Yes, Aid to the Church in Need is involved. We Catholics have a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just the, the last question I wanted to make, one of the things we, hear, we keep hearing about ISIS is how they're very well funded. Um, now, we know a lot of that funding comes from a lot of the countries who are, you know, allies of the U.S., uh, for instance, Turkey, who's also a NATO ally. Uh, when, my question is, when IDC launches, is awareness of such things something that we're going to go to Congress and fight for? Thank you. Excellent question. Um, this, is, this is open source, everyone, so... Uh, I would encourage everybody to do their own research here, but if you start researching where the, the money from that organizations such as ISIS, Nusra, Al-Qaeda, where it comes from, uh, I think you may be a little bit surprised. Um, because in some ways it's, it's coming from everybody driving up and down the street outside. It's coming from the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the vast wealth of the Gulf, Gulf states from private individuals the U.S. government, I, I will say, has stepped up its efforts in the last year to curb um, private donations that have come from um, some of these Gulf states, from private citizens into, into the coffers of groups like ISIS. Very difficult to do. It's a very complex issue. Um, if, if you were to ask me, you know, what are the sources of, 
violence and extremism in the Muslim world. That's another one of those two o'clock in the morning discussions that could go on at length. But I, I, I would say that um, you can't just start a terrorist organization. You need money to do it. And, uh, and it, it's very appealing to, to these young people. So every, every sociopath from Lahore to London can get on a plane and be paid to go lop heads off of people. And it's, it's very unsettling. And uh, some of the, the realities of our foreign policy are that uh, there's going to be a reluctance among our leaders and among our institutions to condemn those countries and uh, where, where this funding is coming from. But it is complicated. It's not easy to trace. Um, and there are a lot of, it's a complex region, right? But uh, it, it takes money to run terrorist organizations, and, and they are well-funded. Now, they've, they've become very adroit at kidnapping, and every time they see a, a face that looks like mine wandering the Middle East with a camera, that's two, three, four million dollars. Well, so they grab that person. The only reason I bring it up is that it's one thing that it comes from private donors, it's hard to track them. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Me and too. And Thank I, you. I, I would also just, just sorry, I sorry. was going to think. Take that back. I don't think. <laughs> I would, uh, to your excellent question and points, I, w I would say that I think uh, 10, 15 years from now, maybe 20, 25 years from now, as alternate energy sources um, emerge and as the oil dries up, suddenly academia is going to. Uh, when, when all the, the money that's gone from the Gulf to academia uh, is, is going to, uh, forgive me, Georgetown, um, <laughs> you're going to see some programs emerging there talking about human rights abuses that happened during our lifetime. And everyone will look back with shock and outrage, but there's silence now. And you raise a very good point. Jordan, Jordan would, before you applaud, oh. like have a last uh, word. I was just going to say that. Um, a lot of times, our, our political leaders and our media as well, they don't want to make this into a situation where we're focused on Christians being persecuted, and there are others, but I, I was in Nigeria two, three months ago, and right when, if you remember the story of the girls being kidnapped, have you heard anything since then? Actually, I, I heard a couple days ago that a, a couple that escaped are actually living now uh, right outside D.C. Would have been a nice story, I guess, if the media uh, would have followed up on that, but... It's funny talking to when I was in, in Nigeria, and it's the same in the Middle East. Um, they said, "Well, no, n nobody really cared about, especially in the West or, or, or the or president or in the United States, about what was th these girls being kidnapped until it became an issue of girls' education. Once it became, oh, I can hashtag bring our girls back because it's girls need to be educated, which is an important issue. Then you saw many political leaders sort of." get on board with that idea. But when it was Christians being targeted, and many before and many since have, uh, it wasn't an issue they really wanted to, to stand up and, and, and talk about. So we, we as Christians, as Catholics and others, need to, to make that point that it, it is an, an ISIS or Boko Haram and these other groups, they're not shy about, about saying that this is a, 
you know, a spiritual battle. It's, it's, we're trying to get rid of Christians. We're gonna, we want to go to Rome. We want to, you know, we want to attack Christians. That's the target. And, and, and so we need to remind those around us, our family members, our friends, and our, you know, our leaders, political leaders and religious leaders sometimes too, that, that um, it's, it's a spiritual battle. Um, and, and, and one that we're, I guess, if, again, if we're not the ones that are going to be standing up for, for Christians around the world, we can't, we can't expect others to. So. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.